Last week I told you that Genesis is divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with primeval history. And chapters 12 through 50 deals with uh, patriarchal history. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. And of course, the 12 tribes of Israel come from the sons of Jacob. That's why the names of the tribes are eponyms. Now, does everyone know what an eponym is? I said that one time while I was teaching. I had several people come up to me and say, do you coin words? Well, no. Well, I've never heard of that word. So if you don't know what an eponym is, let me explain it. Whenever something's named after a person, it's an eponym. In fact, I'm going to give you the etymology of the word so you know I'm not coining it. The word eponym is transliterated from the Greek compound word eponymous. In fact, there is a word in English, we translate it eponymous. And as you know, a compound word is made up of more than one word. In this case, it's made up of two words. The prefix epi, which actually means after, and the root word onima or onimos, which means name. Now, when you combine these two words, it literally means named after. So the 12 tribes of Israel are named after the 12 sons of Jacob. They are eponyms. So when I say patriarchal history, I'm talking about the history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob. And specifically, when we start looking at uh, the sons of, of Jacob, we're going to go to Joseph. Now, what's kind of interesting is, as we're going through the book of Genesis, I had a person come up to me and say, well, how do you know what events to study and the people to study? And I told them, well, there's actually four great events in the book of Genesis, and there are four great people in the book of Genesis. You've got creation, the fall, Noah's flood, and the Tower of Babel. That's the four great events that we're going to be studying. And then with the four great people, who are they? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, what do you know about the 12 sons? Who should we pick out of that? Well, who's the story that we read the most about in Genesis? Joseph. So that's what we're going to actually be looking at. Now, as I said last week, Genesis chapter 12, verse number 3, is the transitional verse between the two sections. And it's the key to understanding the Old Testament. So if you would, go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse number 3. Hopefully you've already marked this in your Bible. It says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, the word families is translated from the Hebrew word mishpacha, and it means nations. So what this is saying is that through Abraham and his descendants, all of the nations on the earth will be blessed. Now, how is that supposed to happen? How is God going to bless all of the families, all of the nations on the earth through Abraham and his descendants? Well... God gave the nation of Israel, those who were descendants of Abraham, a specific job. As a nation, they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, which means that they were entrusted with God's revelation. They were entrusted with the word of God. And as priests, they were supposed to act as a mediator to reveal God's word, God's plan of redemption to the entire world or the rest of the world. So that's why the nation of Israel is the focus of the Old Testament. It's not because God is a bigot. It's not because God loves the Jews more than anyone else. Huh? -uh. In fact, when we hear the term, the chosen people or God's chosen people, what do you think of when you hear that? You always think of, well, God loves them more. They're, they're God's favorites. They're his chosen. But actually, that's not what that means. 
What it actually means is God chose this nation to be the ones who are going to reveal God's plan of redemption to the rest of the world. They're chosen to do this work. Does that make sense? It's because God's plan from the beginning was to use one nation to reveal his plan of redemption to the rest of the world. And that's exactly what he did. He revealed his plan of redemption to the Jews through what we refer to as the Old Testament. Of course, the word testament means Old Covenant. So through the Old Covenant, he has revealed this plan of redemption. And then he fulfilled the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And now the gospel has gone out to the rest of the world, to the whole world. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Because at that junction, juncture, the Bible goes from a universal focus in the first section to a focus on a specific group of people. But the ultimate goal is to bring salvation to the entire world, to the rest of the world. Now, if you don't understand that, then the Old Testament is just a bunch of stories about a... a, a, a uh, particular or, or a, 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 a funny, I guess is what I would say, group of people that we know as Jews. Because they are a peculiar people. We look at the Jews and we look at their traditions and we look at what all has happened to them and we say, why in the world would we have all of these stories about them? But it's because this is the nation that was chosen to reveal God's plan of redemption to the whole world. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the Old Testament. So let me show you the nine basic stages of the Old Testament, if you don't mind. I want you to see what these are. First of all, you've got the creation stage. The creation stage is chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Genesis. Then we're going to move on to the patriarchal stage. We're going to find out who is the man that God chose. Abraham, and he makes a promise to him. And through his descendants, we have Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob. And then through those 12, tri or those 12 uh, sons, we're going to have 12 tribes. That's going to make up this chosen people of God. Chosen to do God's will. Chosen to reveal God's plan of redemption to the rest of the world. And then we're going to move on to the Exodus stage. How is he going to take this nation and create this kingdom of priests? Then we're going to move on to the conquest stage, which they are now going into the land that they've been promised. God wants to give them a specific land in which he's going to fulfill this covenant. Then we go on to the judges stage, where every man did right in his own eyes. And then they would fall into... Uh, Captivity, and when I say captivity, I don't mean carried away into it. They would actually have kings from other nations come in and invade them, and they would be oppressed, and they would pray until God raised up judges. And then you go into the United Kingdom stage. Now, that's kind of interesting. That's where David comes into the picture, and he creates the Davidic kingdom. And he's a man after God's own heart. And then it's passed on to Solomon, and, and Israel hits the pinnacle of glory under Solomon. So we see that in the United Kingdom stage. And then we go to the divided, I guess I should be up here, shouldn't I? The divided kingdom stage. We find out what takes place with Solomon's son. The, ki the kingdom of Israel is divided. And so now you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is referred to as who? Judah. The northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. So at this stage, Israel no longer refers to all of Israel. It refers to the ten northern tribes. They're going to get carried off into the Assyrian uh, captivity. But the Judah doesn't. Not for a while. 
They're not carried away into the Babylonian captivity. And so we have the Babylonian captivity stage. And then there's the return stage where they come back to the, to the land. And that's basically how the Old Testament is broken up. But it's all about the nation of Israel from chapter 12 on. Yes, we have stories about other nations and they, they play a role in all of this from time to time. But basically the story is about the descendants of Abraham. But the reason it's about Israel is because they are chosen by God to reveal God's plan of redemption to the world so that the whole world might be saved. God's not going to work through all of these different nations because it would be corrupted. So he chooses one group of people. And we're going to find out why he specifically chose Abraham when we come to the character of Abraham. Now, let's move on to the story of creation. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're only going to cover this one verse tonight. Sorry, we're not really moving very fast, are we? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Verse number one tells us that before anything ever existed, God existed. In the beginning, God. So what this is is implying is that God is eternal. Now, let me explain the concept of eternity and what eternal means. Eternity is the transcendence of time. It refers to an eternal existence, one without beginning or end. Now, in the strictest sense, only God has and will experience true eternity. Because only God has no beginning or end. In other words, God has always existed and he will always exist. So in that sense, only God has and will experience true eternity. In fact, the Old Testament says that God inhabits eternity. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verse number 15. And let's read the first part of it. For thus saith the high and lofty one, the one that inhabiteth eternity. Now, the New Living Translation translates this as, God lives in eternity. So in a sense, we might think of it this way. Eternity is a place that transcends time, and that's where God abides. Now, Because all other beings are created, it means that we're excluded from experiencing true eternity. Now, I'm not saying that we don't get eternal life. We will get to experience eternal life. But in the strictest sense of the word, because we are created beings, we're excluded from experiencing this true eternity. Why? Because all beings, besides God, have a beginning. Does that make sense? I can live forever with God. But I did not come into into existence until, well actually about 10 months before this, but existence until June 11th, 1960. So I can experience eternity from that time on, but I did not exist until I was conceived, we'll say nine months Everyone says that. But anyways, until I was conceived and then I was born, of course, June the 11th, 1960. But here's what I want you to understand. When Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God, it's referring to our beginning. The heaven and the earth's beginning, not God's because, uh, not God's 
Because God is eternal. He's always existed and he will always exist. Now, turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. Underline the word created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a very important word. Next week, we're going to go more in depth on this word. But let me just kind of give you an overall meaning of it. The word created is translated from the Hebrew word bara, which means to create out of nothing. It's different from the other words that are used in the book of Genesis. And we will distinguish the two words that are used and why they're different. All right? But I just want you to understand that the Hebrew word bara actually means to create out of nothing. Theologians refer to this as creatio ex nihilo. Creatio ex nihilo. That's Latin for creation from nothing. So Genesis 1.1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 3, reinforces this interpretation. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand... That the entire universe was formed at God's command. He spoke it into existence, right? That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. That's visible. It doesn't just mean with the physical eye. It means with the microscope or anything else. What can be seen with any tool that you might have. We understand that God at his command. The universe was formed. And what we now see did not come from anything that we can see. Whether it's with our naked eye or whether it's with a microscope. So what Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is telling us is that an eternal God created everything we see from nothing. And that there was a point in time in which the universe came into existence. But before that time, nothing Physical existed but God. Now, why did I say physical? Because we don't know when God created the angels. We don't know when these other spiritual things were created. But they were also created by God, but that's in a different part of the Bible. But we do know that nothing physical existed but God when this happened. The creation story, Genesis 1.1. Now, the Bible is not a book of science per se, but neither does it contradict science. Now, everyone uses that phrase per se, but do you know what it really means? That phrase per se actually means in and of itself or by itself. So what I'm saying is this. The Bible is not intended to be a science book, but neither does it contradict science. In fact, when the world thought that the earth was flat, the Bible told us that it was spherical. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out into a tent to dwell in. Now I want you to underline that word circle. It's translated from the Hebrew word kug, and it means spherical. As opposed to flat or square. Now a sphere has the shape of a curve everywhere. Equidistance from a fixed point. Does that make sense? So what it's saying is it's a circle. It's a sphere. It's spherical. And science has proven that the Bible is right. 
The earth is spherical. When the world thought that the earth was being held up by some mythological person or some type of columns, the Bible said that the earth was suspended in space. Look at the first book ever written, the book of Job, chapter 26, verse number 7. And I can't say it was the first book ever written. I can tell you it, it is believed to be the first book ever written. It says, he spreads out the northern skies. I'm talking about it in the Bible, if that makes sense. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. When the ancient pagans believed that rain was actually the tears of the gods, the Bible explained the process of rain. Look at Job chapter 36, verses 27 through 28. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits. The Bible makes statements consistent with astrology. It explains meteorology, biogenesis, physics, and hydrology. Hydrothermal vents are described in two books of the Bible written before 1400 B.C. and 3,000 years before it was discovered by science or their discovery by science. But my point is this. The book is not a, the Bible is not a book about science or a book of science per se, but neither does it contradict science. And if it does contradict science, science later discovers it was wrong and the Bible was right, such as the earth being flat. Everyone believed that the earth was flat and these who were considered scientists found out mm -mm, they were wrong. The Bible was right. Now, science tells us that the earth is approximately 16 billion years old. A little more, a little less, but most of them believe a little bit more. All right? But the Bible says that the earth was made in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. And those days were regular days. When I say regular days, I mean 24 hours long, and an hour is 60 minutes, and each minute has 60 seconds. Does that make sense? Turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse number 11. For in six days, now this is out of the book of Genesis. This is in the book of Exodus. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the word days in this verse is translated from the Hebrew word yom. And it refers to a 24-hour period. So this verse is telling us that God made the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour periods. Now, what day was man made on? The sixth day. Six is the number of man. That's why when the Antichrist comes, what would the mark of the beast be? 666. The Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. It's the trinity that's all there in the Antichrist. It is going to be a counterfeit of the real trinity. But the number will be 666. But the reason that the mark is 666 is because 6 is the number of man. Why is it the number of man? Because man was made on the sixth day. Now, if you study the genealogies of the Bible, Adam was created somewhere around 4000 B.C. The Jews have it pegged at 4004 B.C. You have a lot of others, uh, tradition says. And there's some give and take there. But it's about 4004 B.C. So that would make the earth how old from where we are now. If Adam was created on the sixth day, and we're talking 24-hour days. Okay, we're, we're, not, we're not 
throwing a trick question out here. He's created on the sixth day, somewhere around 4004 B.C. if we go by the genealogies in the Bible. So now we go 4,000 years to the time of Christ. And from the time of Christ until now, how old is the earth? It's not a trick question. 6,000 years old. Good job. All right. So there seems to be a discrepancy between what science says and what the Word of God says. So you've got this great debate going between Christians who believe in a young earth and, between, and Christians who believe in an old earth. Those who believe in a young earth believe the earth is only 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Why do they fudge with about 4,000 years? Well, we're not quite sure we can uh, look at the genealogies. Some people were probably left out. They only put important people there. But we're telling you it's a young earth. It's between 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Now, those who believe it's an old earth believe that the earth is about 16 billion years old. Now, we're talking about Christians. So Christians who believe in a young earth accuse Christians who believe in an old earth of being heretics. They also accuse them of denying the word of God, denying what the word of God says. And it gets nasty, really nasty. Now, you guys don't know this probably because most pastors don't get up from behind the pulpit and teach on the creation story. If they do, I mean, they breeze right through it. And as a result of that, they don't tell you this great debate that's going on. The only time you hear about this great debate is if you go to Bible college or you go to a seminary or... You just are interested in this, and so you go out and buy theological books. Now, when you go out and buy theological books and you start reading on this, let me tell you, it gets nasty. They might not use the four-letter words, but because they're scholars, they use 20-letter words to describe the other party. And let me tell you, they're just as nasty, even though they aren't cussed words. But the truth is, and this is what I want you to see tonight, It is possible to believe in an old earth and also believe what the Word of God says. You can believe that the earth is 16 billion years old and still believe that the Word of God is infallible and inerrant in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. Now, why did we say inerrant in the original languages? Because we don't believe, as so many people will say in I'm not trying to point out any churches, but we believe in the King James Version. If it was good enough for Paul and Peter, it's good enough for us. They didn't speak in English. The King James Version is a translation. It wasn't translated until 1611 where we got the King James Version Bible. But I want you to understand, it is possible to believe that the earth is 16 billion years old and still believe that the Bible is infallible and inerrant in the original languages. And I'm going to explain why I say that. You see, most conservative Christians who believe in an old earth believe in one of two theories. They either believe in the Genesis Big Bang theory or they believe in the gap theory. And I'm going to explain both of them, but only one of them tonight because it takes a little bit of time. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You have to think tonight. I know most of you don't like to think. I know the majority of you, you come, you say, Pastor, make it simple. We don't want to think. You just tell me what I should believe. You just tell me what I should think. And then I will do that. I'm not going to do that tonight. You must think. Now, let me say this. 
I read so much about this stuff, and I see how nasty it gets. I don't want to hear what you think. I don't want you to email me. I don't want you to give me a note. I don't want you to walk up to me and say, well, Pastor, let me tell you why it can't be this way. And then start giving me all your things. I've read it. I've listened to the cassettes. I've seen the DVDs. I've studied it out. I understand where you're coming from. But you know what? I'm tired of it being nasty. All right? So I'm going to show you both theories. And then we're going to actually, when we finish with verse number two next week, then we're going to look at the creation story from day one on. All right? So, let me explain. Let's start with the Genesis Big Bang Theory. The Genesis Big Bang Theory holds that the universe originated approximately 16 billion years ago from the mouth of God, and it's been expanding ever since. And everything we see is the result of that one moment when God spoke everything into existence. Basically, it's the same as the Big Bang Theory, except that God is the cause of it. Not pre-existing matter and extremely high density and temperature. Remember, the Bible teaches creatio, ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing. We believe that the Bible, well, I shouldn't just say it, the Bible does teach that God created, created it out of nothing. So it's basically the same thing as the Big Bang Theory, except that God is the cause of it, not pre-existing matter. Instead, God just spoke our universe into existence. And it's been expanding ever since, creating the universe that we see. And it is still expanding, and science shows that. Now, let me talk a little bit about the relationship between the expanding universe and time. In fact, what's kind of interesting is this is what Albert Einstein's work was all about. So basically what we're going to be talking about is what Albert Einstein actually worked on. And then I'm going to show you. I'm going to look at this relationship between the expanding universe and time and how it relates to the book of Genesis and the story of creation. So let me begin by quoting from the book, The Principles of Physical Cosmology, The Science of the Universe. It's probably the most quoted book by scientists when it comes to this field. Here's the quote. The standard interpretation of the redshift as an effect of the expansion of the universe predicts that the same redshift factor applies to the observed rates of occurrence of distant events. Did you catch that? In other words, and in layman's terms, the exact same relationship between the stretching of space or expanding of space also relates to the rate at which we observe time. Now, I'm going to make it even simpler than that. So, what it's saying is the measurement of time expands as the universe expands and it expands at the same rate. Everyone with me? And the rate at which time is expanding is 1 million squared. That's 1 with how many zeros? John can tell you later. All right? So, a minute of time. At the beginning of time would be observed by us here on the earth at a million times a million minutes later. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this in just a little bit. Now, I am not a math professor. We have several here. I am not a scientist. 
I'm just coming in and going to explain something about this theory and what they believe. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. If you, if you want a good book on this, it's called Genesis and the Big Bang. It's by Gerald Schrader. Let me say a little bit about Gerald Schrader. He is an applied physicist. He actually got his degree, his undergrad, and his doctorate degree from MIT. He's also taught at MIT. He worked on the atomic bomb. He uh, actually has seen five atomic bombs detonated in the testing phases of it. He is a Messianic Jew. Uh, he's taught at several prestigious places. He now lives in, in uh, Israel, and he studies the Torah. But it's, it's a great book. It's got to think a little bit as you read it. But anyways, let's apply what I just said to the earth. The earth is supposedly how old? 16 billion years. If you divide 16 billion by a million squared, it equals 0 0.016. Now, we've got to convert years into days. So that means we're going to multiply 0 0.016 by 365 days, because there's 365 days in a year. That equals six days. 5.84 to be precise according to Albert Einstein's theory, all right? So what we have is God creating the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour periods, or six days. And I'm going to show you how this is done in just a minute. In the beginning, at a precise moment in time, God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence from nothing. But remember, because the universe is expanding the redshift factor applies to the rate at which we observe time. So we observe this six-day period over a 16-billion-year period of time. And I'm going to give you an example, all right? This little point is the beginning. It's when God spoke the world into existence. Remember it says, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's suppose at this beginning that God sent out this beam of light. Now, we're going to call it light now, but we know it's the universe. I just want you to see what happens. But what if we could be there at the beginning, and we also sent out this beacon of light, and we stopped it, and a second later we sent out another one. So when this light went out, there's going to be a second in between them. So we've got this light going out. Now, did you notice that the lines are getting a little bit bigger or longer? Maybe I should say that. Why is that? Because, and this is the universe, because time expands at the same rate that space expands. So there was this second interval between the light, and it was only one second at the beginning. But because space is expanding, and time expands at the same rate that space expands, because it's now getting bigger, well, all of a sudden we're seeing the second begin to expand. And what's the rate at which it's expanding? A million squared. So now what takes place is what was a second long. Now being observed, and this is what we're talking about in the theory, that these physicists have worked on. How, can, can I make this simpler for you? 
How many of you watched the original Planet of the Apes? Oh, yeah, that's how simple we're going to make it. They were in this spaceship, and all of a sudden they land on this planet, and they think it's Earth. We're back at Earth. And then they get out, and then they notice some of the people, there was a leak in it, and it was like they were just decayed. I mean, and then they looked, and all these years had passed, but they hadn't. And now they were so many years into the future, but they'd only be gone in their time estimates. It all went back, and this is kind of, Hollywood took this, and they based the Planet of the Apes on that. Does that make sense? Now are you getting what I'm saying? So what took place is the second of time here, because the space is expanding. Time expands the same, at the same rate that space does. And so one of the things is, by the time we get here, and now we're going to take that one second times a million squared. So it's one second here, but it's one second times a million squared here as we observe time. Wow. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The Bible looks forward into time, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. It starts here and says, In the beginning, God created So now, the Bible is going to look at time, history, from the beginning. The Bible looks forward into time. So from the Bible's perspective, creation took how many days? Six days. That makes sense? Six, 24-hour periods of time. Because the Bible looks at creation from the beginning. But... Science looks backward into time. So from where we're at in space and in time, that six-day period took 16 billion years. It just depends on whether you're looking forwards or backwards. And this is what... Albert Einstein was working on. And this is what the Planet of the Apes is based on. No, I'm just teasing. Now, as I said, God looks forward into time. And so does Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1, up until a point. Because that all changes once man is created. Because when man is created on the sixth day, The Bible begins to look at time from the earth's perspective. Why? Because the Bible is God's revelation to man. So naturally, the Bible is going to look at time from man's perspective. Or you might say the earth's perspective. But until man is created, the Bible is going to look at time from the beginning. One second. This took place one second here. But as we go out and this space is is expanding, then time is expanding at the same rate. And so now we can calculate that. So they come in and they calculate that. And they say, by the time it gets to our space and time, that second is now. So in the beginning, God created the earth. And we see the six-day period. And he's creating these things. He's speaking this into existence. But in our earth and space and time, now we're looking back. But once man is created... So God is looking this way, but once man is created, all of a sudden, now the Bible will change from looking forward into time, but now it's going to deal with time 
from earth's perspective, from man's perspective. Does that make sense? And that's what the Genesis Big Bang Theory is all about. Now, next week, we're going to look at the gap theory. Because there's another theory. There are some people that are, that are creationists. They're, they're born-again believers. They believe that the Bible is infallible. It's inspired by God. And they believe that the earth is owed. And they believe that the Bible supports that. They believe that there is a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And we will look at the exegesis of their interpretation. And we're going to take a look and see how did they get that. Now, the other thing I want to do, but I don't have any power over this, is I would like for my dad one day to teach a series on Sunday mornings on how science points to a creator. I grew up in a home where my, my dad is a scientist. My, my dad uh, teaches physical chemistry or taught physical chemistry. And, and basically most of the doctors that come from this area in the state of Oklahoma were taught underneath my dad. All of the professors that he worked for, with that were evolutionists, they would come in, they start spouting this off. They didn't stay long when Dad was around because Dad could prove that what they were saying was a bunch of crap. And so you need to talk to my dad because I've tried to do it many times. I'd like for him to do a series on a Sunday morning sometime, maybe even the summer, and to teach how science points to a great creator. And you can see that there has to be an omnipotent God who's brought all these things into existence. And when you look at the laws of science, it shows you this. But the problem is the majority of pastors never teach on this. Our kids go off to college, and when they get off to college, they get all frustrated because they're science teachers. Tell them that, well, that's not true. That's a bunch of bunk. But the truth of the matter is the majority of those science teachers really are not thinkers. All they can do is regurgitate what they've heard. The true scientists who can actually take the material, think for themselves, will actually come to a faith. And it, it, and it might not be in Jesus, but it's a faith in God. Because science points to a creator.